Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will begin a new Thursday through Friday teaching series from the book of Exodus. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Today, we're going to start a study, a wonderful study on the book of Exodus, Exodus in the Bible. And so let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you so much for being the God who reveals yourself to us. Lord, the God who gave the word to us. We treasure this word because of who it came from, God. Who it speaks of, God. And what its purpose is to bring us to God. And so thank you, Lord, for the book of Exodus. Teach us as we begin our study. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, Exodus chapter 1, and uh, follow along here as I read the first 17 verses to create the backdrop for how we're going to start our study. Exodus 1.1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died. And all his brethren and all that generation And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold. The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, And see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall 
kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. So this is the beginning of the backdrop of our book of Exodus. What an exciting history that it starts off with. It's so much for us to, to consider. But before we do, we want to talk a little bit about just the name. Now, when we have the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, this portion, along with all of the Old Testament, was translated about 300 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came by a group of 70 rabbis in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, and it was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And at that time, the books were given Greek names. Exodus is not an English name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. And that's what it comes from, and it means the going out. It's referring to the time when the children of Israel, when the Jewish people left Egypt. Now, that's not a bad name for the book. It's not a bad name. It's only one part. It's only one part of the whole history that's in here, or the whole of the themes. But all right, that's what it is. Now, we should, since we're on this subject, we should really talk about the origin, or the, the, we'll just talk about, just in general, the concept of naming the books of the Bible. And for that matter, we can even really be talking about the chapter designations, where the chapters break, the verse designations, where the verses break, and so forth, the numbering of the chapters, the numbering of the verses. And it's really important for us to understand that all of those, the giving of the names of the book, the chapter designations, the divisions, the verse designations, they're not inspired. In fact, they were all put in there less than a thousand years ago. That's the way it was. So let me create a little bit of a backdrop here. You might say to yourself, well, if it's so recent, then what did the Jewish people do for so many thousands of years when they had the books, but they, they didn't have the names of the books, they didn't have the chapter divisions, they didn't have the verse designations. How could you find your way around the books? Well, let me tell you that it was common at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ that a Jewish boy would go through a certain typical course. And the typical course went like this. When the Jewish boy was six years old during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would enter typically into a special school called the house of the book. The house of the book. Beit, that means house. Sefer means the book, the house of the book. So here's a six-year-old coming into this school called Bet Sefer, the house of the book, and here they come, and here's, here's Joshua, and here's Abraham, and here's, here's uh, uh, Chaim, and so forth like that. And here they all come, and there's some of those six-year-old boys, Jewish boys, and they're all coming into this school called the house of the book. And they're going to be in that school for four years. And so you say, well, what did they do there for four years until they were 10 years old? What did they do there for four years? Well, after the teacher introduces herself, and then they say, here's the book. They give them the scroll. It wasn't a book, a scroll. And they said, now, children, repeat after me. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's what they'd say. Children, repeat after me. Barashit, bara, Elohim. Hashemayim et va'aretz. He says, just say these words. He says, say these words, children. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And all the children would say, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Told me, oh, very good. Now say the next one. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And all the children would say, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness upon the face of the deep. Mitzion, very good. Yofi, beautiful. She'd say, just say it again. Now let's put the two together. What am I doing? 
for four years. That's what they did in Betsafer. They just memorized. They memorized the first five books of Moses. They memorized what we call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They memorized those books by heart. The teacher didn't say, now, do you know what this means? No. And she didn't say, Johnny, what do you think about? No. She didn't say, "Uh, Joshi, how would you interpret those words? No. All she said was that, Joshi, recite for me. And Joshi would stand up there and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he would just go in there, and the class would clap, and the next one, and so forth. Four solid years. They memorized, at the end of those four years, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. That's all they did. And then they graduated from that school, Bet Safer, and they entered into the second four-year school, which was a school called the House of the Student. Bet House Talmud, student, House of the Student. And for four years, they, what did they do in those four years? Well, they did that. They came and they said, okay, now you know the first five books of Moses. And they said, now students, welcome to the school. And they said, students, repeat this. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua. And they all said, now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, and so forth. And so What happened then was that for the next four years, they memorized the rest of the Old Testament. So that after these two schools, the Bet Sefer, the first division, the first school, they memorized the first five books. Bet Talmud, they memorized the remaining. So that altogether, they had memorized the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's what they did. You didn't have to say to them, can anybody tell me what's in uh, Exodus 10, 17? All you had to do was just start the verse. Can anybody tell me, let's say, for example, you say Exodus 31, 3. They wouldn't say that because those things exist. The book didn't exist. The divisions didn't exist. And so how would they know? All they'd have to do is say, uh, you remember, students, The part where it says, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom. And they say, oh yes, they would say, you're talking about Bezalel and the building of the tabernacle. And then they would give you the verses before it and they would give you the verses afterward and everybody would be on the same page in their mind. And so they didn't need the names and the divisions of the chapters and the books and so forth because it was all committed to memory. And that was the basic training for a six-year-old until he was 10, for the first five books of Moses, and then a 10-year-old, until he was 14, the rest of the book called the Haftorah, or the other parts other than the Torah, which was, in essence, all of that comprised 39 books of the Old Testament. And then they came to the age of 14. Don't forget that when they were 13, that they went through the Bar Mitzvah, which meant that now they were a son of the law, the son of the good work, the Mitzvah, and that was also typically reviewed as the age of accountability, when they were were responsible 100% for their own actions. But anyway, they come to graduate at the age of 14, and then there were different rabbis in the land. And each one of these rabbis had his own particular interpretation of the Bible, his own particular 
philosophical view or his own particular meaning of what these verses are. Because remember now, for the first eight years there, during the, from 6 to 10 and 10 to 14, we're not giving meaning to the kids here of what the scriptures are. We're just giving them just the pure word so that it's embedded within their mind. We're turning them into a library. All right, we're filling up their computer chip with all the knowledge of the words of, of the 39 books. That's all we're doing here. Nobody's asking for meaning. Nobody's giving meaning. They're just making sure they got the raw data. But when they become 14, there are different rabbis with different meanings. You know how the old view goes. You have two Jews together. You have three interpretations. Well, they had these different rabbis, and they had many interpretations of what it all meant. And then so there you had the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection or the life after death. And then you had the Pharisees, who did believe in the resurrection and life after death. See, those were all camps, and there were rabbis behind each one of those camps. Gamaliel, Rabbi Gamaliel, was one of them, of whom the Apostle Paul had attached himself before he came to light, before he came to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what would happen at the age of 14 is that the boys would then be interviewed by the different rabbis in order to enter the next phase which was called the house of meaning or the house of interpretation. Bait for house midrash. Midrash for meaning or interpretation. And these rabbis would interview these boys to become followers of them. And only a very small percentage of the boys were chosen. Just the smartest, cream of the crop, whoever the rabbis wanted to. And the others would take up a trade or go into their father's business or whatever. And that was how it was. Today, Tom, you mentioned about memorizing the Bible without knowing the meaning of that scripture verse or about the God of the Bible in which you're memorizing. Where does this lead a person if we continue to do this. Yes, this is a very, very important thing because, you know, some people believe that the Bible is some kind of a mystical book, that somehow it has mystical powers. I mean, I know people, for example, who have told me that when they have an important decision to make, that they take this book, the Bible, and they 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 flip open to one page and they read something and somehow some uh, some mystical message is going to pop right off the page and they're going to get all kinds of, of direction. This is not how the value is how the bible is valuable to us or 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 to just memorize the bible without knowing the meaning of the verses without knowing the author of the verses value will not come because what it says in in 2 Corinthians 3 3 through 6 is it says for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. See what he's saying here? He's saying it's not a case of being written with ink, but it's being it's when the spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the living God, takes the Word of God and writes it not in tables of stone, but on the fleshly tables of our heart, then the Bible becomes valuable for us. 
And then Paul goes on and says, you know, you might ask the question, and when you read something like that or hear something like that, you might say, who in the world can do this? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked, because in verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. See what he's saying here. God wants to give life. God in his Holy Spirit wants to give life. And so what he's saying here is that he's saying, if you come to me, if you if a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of Christ will take the words of Christ, the Word of God, and make them alive. He said that's why he says the Spirit gives life to the Word of God. But the letter alone, without the Spirit of God, without God, without any meaning, and just memorizing, he says the letter killeth. That brings death. But the but but the letter, the word of God, with the spirit of the living Christ, that brings life. That's why it's so important every time you come to the Bible to open it up and say, Oh God, make this word to be alive to me. Open this word to my heart, open my heart to this word, that your spirit may show me the words of eternal life in this book as I open it. That's what it means. The Spirit giveth life. That's some great teaching and understanding there from Second Corinthians because you're mentioning that the letter killeth, but that the Spirit giveth life. So you need both for the Bible to come alive. Is that what I'm understanding, Tom? Yes. You know, the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke so clearly on this subject in John chapter 6, verse 63, where he said, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. That means that makes alive. So he's saying here, it is the Spirit of God. You can call him the Spirit of life. He's called that in the Bible. It's the Spirit of life that gives life. And then the Master said, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So he's making very clear to us that when we receive life from the word of God, as he said, the words that I speak unto you, they are life. It is because it's the spirit of life that's taking the word of God and he's applying it to our hearts. He's saying, if you come to the Bible with only flesh and blood, in other words, if you were to open up the Bible and you say, I don't need God, I don't need God at all. This is a this Bible is just fine in and of itself, so I'm just going to open this Bible, you will not get anything. In other words, he said, the flesh profiteth nothing. But notice how he puts this together this way. The words that I speak unto you. This means that when we open up the Bible, God will take the words of the Bible and he will make it a personalized message to us, a personal letter. That's what he does because he is faithful to use the word of God in our lives. And he says, the words that I speak unto you, And that's very important for us when we come to the Bible to say to God, Oh God, speak to my heart. I will die without life. I will die without hearing the words of life, 
the words that you speak unto me. That's why he said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. In other words, they are the words that the spirit of life, the spirit of God is going to take and apply to you and may come alive to you and impress you with and cause you to remember and give you like these these indications. This is what God has spoken to you. Take this, put it in your pocket. Do not lose it. Rehearse it through the day. Let nothing of it drop and fall to the ground. Why? Because they are life. And we want the words of life. That's what Peter said. When Peter was questioned whether or not he would turn away, Peter said, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And Jesus always does have words of life. And I did a little study one time on my own and noticed that Jesus always used explanation points when he talked about scribes and Pharisees, lawyers, and religious leaders. And I assume that's because he knew they could be a hindrance to people. Can you talk more about that? Well, yes. You know, the verse that we were ta- looking at today, Luke eleven fifty two, is a very, very fearful warning and he, whenever the, the, the one who is charged with all judgment of men, whenever the one who actually casts men into hell says these words, woe unto you, that's a terrible, terrible situation. And that's exactly what he did in Luke eleven fifty two when he said, woe unto you lawyers. You know, it just makes us shudder in our shoes as we think the one who is holding the keys of life and death is turning and saying, woe unto you lawyers. And then he explains why. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge. He says, ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. Oh, what a terrible, terrible thing. What is he saying? He's saying you've taken away the key of knowledge. What is the key of knowledge? No, that's not the right question. The question is, who is the key of knowledge? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the key of knowledge. When it says that they took away the key of knowledge, that means that they took away from their minds, their hearts, their considerations, their thinking that there was any possibility that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. They completely erased that out, wiped it off, took it out. That's what it means. They took away the key of knowledge. Then he says, you entered not in yourselves. Think about it. The door to heaven The key to the door to heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came and offered himself as the key so that they could open that door and come in to safety, to eternal life, to joy and happiness forever. It's a door. There's a key of knowledge. And he said, you didn't go yourself. You entered not in yourself Now, that's one thing, and that's horrible for them. That's absolutely terrible. But then they took one more step, which was absolutely damning. And that step was, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. So he said, 
All of you needed eternal life. All of you needed to be forgiven from your sins. All of you needed to be spared from hell. All of you needed the grace and mercy of God to come to heaven. The key of knowledge is myself. You took away the key of knowledge, not only from yourself, which was terrible in and of itself, but you. But there were those who were coming to me. There were those who were responding to my teaching. There were those who were, who were coming to me for life. And you hindered them. You threatened them. You threw them out of the synagogue. You threatened them with excommunication, as happened to the blind man in another passage in John. And you 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 threatened them and you and 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 you discredited me before them and you you went to them and you said he's not who he says he could be he is he cannot be the Messiah he is certainly not God and you did that not to yourselves alone but to those young ones that I was wanting to save that they needed to be saved from their sins and you stood in their way. And that's the reason why he said, woe unto you. In another place, he said, be better for you that you weren't born or that a millstone was hanged around your neck and you were cast into the lake because what you did was so horrible. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the start of our new Thursday, Friday message series from Exodus. Now, are you interested in learning more about the Jewish people, their past, their present, their future? Tom Cantor has written a book on the life of Joseph. It's titled, Understanding the Jewish Messiah and the History and Future of the Jewish People Through the Life of Joseph. It's nearly 70 pages. And if you'd like to obtain a copy of this book, please call us today at 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org for more information. Thanks for joining us today. And join us again tomorrow as we continue in Exodus.